from the HBA Podcast Studio in New York City. Welcome to The Medium Rules. I'm Alan Baldishan. Google becomes really the behemoth in online advertising. We effectively became the anti-Google. We became the platform that companies would choose when they cared about ownership of their data, when they cared about transparency, when they cared about uh, take rates. Where do you think opportunities are going to come from in the digital ad business? We've entered a new phase of competition in the digital ad business. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Rubenstein to the HPA podcast studio. Um, Michael is the president of AppNexus, which operates the leading online marketplace for buying and selling digital ads. In August of last year, AppNexus was acquired by AT&T in a transaction reported at $1.6 billion. I won't put you to the test as to how accurate that was. I do M&A, <laughs> so I, I know that's a little bit of a jump ball. Michael has graciously agreed to come on and give us his take on some recent history and the current state of the digital ad business, as well as the d- disruptive technologies we should be looking for over the next five to 10 years. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the AppNexus acquisition. Um, Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so let's start a little bit from the start. Um, you are from Toronto, like me. Yes. And I feel Proudly like I should show. rename this the uh, Toronto Expat in New York in Tech <laughs> podcast, because that seems to be what it's becoming. Um, you went to McGill. I went to Queens. We won't go there, but, uh, you know, a little rivalry. Um, but um, you were working in ad tech in Toronto. Uh, is that right? You were, what, 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 how did you get, how did you sort of get from Toronto to New York into the digital ad business? Sure. So actually when I was at McGill in my second year, um, I, along with a partner started a, uh, business, started an entrepreneurial venture and it was a, uh, campus marketing and advertising business where we were helping corporate sponsors come on to college and university campuses. And during my time at McGill, we did that business every year and it grew and we were working on colleges, college and university campuses all around Canada and the United States. And so um, it was a real learning experience and put enough money in my pocket to be able to afford my college lifestyle and road trips and things like that. But it was my first introduction to entrepreneurship, but also okay. to marketing and advertising. Right. And so when I graduated in um, the late 90s or mid 90s, the internet was just starting to take off, the yep. consumer internet. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it was incredibly cool and something that I wanted to get involved in. And I found this company in Toronto. I moved back to Toronto after McGill. And I found this company in Toronto, a small company. I think they had 11 employees or so. One of my cousins was in the finance department. And they were pioneering um, a new technology to allow people to do email marketing. Was this Flow? It was Flow, but it was even before it was Flow. It was called Media Synergy, which is like the most generic named company ever. Um, and I joined Media Synergy as the company's first account manager, basically. Okay. And it was pretty wild. We rebranded the company to Flow Network, and email was just becoming a thing. I and mean, people were just starting to get email addresses. 
And corporations were figuring out that they could communicate very effectively with consumers over email. Um, and catalogers were figuring that, hey, why am I going to spend $2 on a piece of mail when I could spend a penny to send an email? And email marketing began to take off, uh, permission-based email marketing, and we were the leader in that field. So it was actually one of, if not the only example of a successful dot-com 1.0 era company in Canada. There weren't too many of no. those, as you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, we we became successful and ultimately DoubleClick bought the company in 2000 or 2001. And DoubleClick, I got to know the folks who were running DoubleClick at the time, like an amazing group of yeah. entrepreneurs and executives, folks like Court Cunningham, David Rosenblatt, Kevin Ryan, and many more who are still, a lot of them, you know, executives here of prominence in the tech space in, in New York City. And uh, we hit it off, and I ended up moving to New York. And my career in so so whereas Flow Network's more marketing technology, DoubleClick was an early leader in the online advertising space. And so that was sort of my introduction to online advertising. Okay, um, what happened to Flow within DoubleClick? Did they? continue that email marketing business or did they kind of how, how did that evolve yeah they did they rebranded it dart mail all of DoubleClick's products at the time were dart for this dart for that okay so it was like dart for publishers so forth. So they rebranded it dart mail and uh you know it was uh, a an industry leading esp email service provider until DoubleClick, which had been a public company and had a huge ipo in in web 1.0 uh, you know, had a terrible fall after that and, and had a painful existence as a public company yeah. in the early 2000s. And ultimately in 2004, we sold the company to a private equity firm, Hellman & Friedman, which turned out to be an amazing thing for the company. Um, but as part of that transaction, H&F broke apart a lot of the divisions and sold them to other businesses. The interesting thing to sort of like follow the thread through yeah is ultimately what had been Flow Network, then Dartmail, ended up as part of Epsilon. And Epsilon, just in the last couple of months, was sold to Publicis for $4.4 billion. So there was a lot of that um, Toronto early Web 1.0 DNA, DNA in uh, you know, a really noteworthy large um, transaction recently as well. So following the double-click thread through... Um, what role did you take on sort of at DoubleClick? How did, how did your career there evolve sort of up through the acquisition of DoubleClick by Google in 2007, which I want to talk about? But so in that, in that period, yeah. It's a great question. So, so when I moved to New York, I uh, joined uh, DoubleClick as an account manager, basically. And I think one of the things that became evident in the year or two afterwards was I was really good at building big strategic client relationships for the company. And I think it was in 2003, I was still working on that email product and I went to Virginia, which was where AOL was based, and was able to convince AOL to deprecate, I think it was 11 different email systems around the company and centralize everything on the DoubleClick email platform, which at the time was a huge deal for us. I mean you know, far, far bigger than anything we had done to date. And even though AOL was probably starting to get right past its peak, yep. it was still, huge. you know, huge. It yep. was a, a massive company, you know, maybe 
um, analogous to Facebook today or, yeah. or something like that. And uh, it was a huge deal for the company. And then after that, a year later, I was able to convince them to also deprecate their homegrown ad serving systems and to use DoubleClick as the um, advertising platform uh, for all of AOL. On the supply side, obviously. At exactly. That time. Yeah. 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 They had AOL was all very proprietary technology. It wasn't designed to um, interoperate with the open web, and it didn't work very easily with technology that agencies and other media buyers were standardizing on. So it was holding it, it was being held back by its closed system. Yeah. Okay. And at the time, they were managing a, a transition from being primarily a subscription-based product to more of an advertising-based business. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, you know, they did make that transition, but it didn't work out very well right. for them for a variety of reasons. Yeah. So it was a it was a seminal moment for DoubleClick and for AOL. For DoubleClick, because after the sale to H&F, we were really trying to find, or, or really in the lead-up to the sale to H&F, we were trying to find our footing. Uh, you know, it had been a number of years of just sort of getting beat up. And I think the AOL deal helped us to find the floor and... Almost find your identity. Yeah. 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 Um, so you manage that process. And then, as I understand it, um, you were instrumental in developing what became the first ad exchange. Can you talk about that at, at DoubleClick? Yeah. So up until that point, just given you know what I'd done at DoubleClick, I was sort of known as AOL Ruby. Okay. I remember someone stopped me on the street. Can anyone still call you that? Uh, <laughs> I was with my wife recently, and we were on 8th Avenue, and I saw an old colleague, and he said to his wife, hey, that's AOL Ruby. That's amazing. Um, and she said, can you explain that to me? Right. So, uh, But, you know, I went at the same time that I'd been doing those deals with AOL and getting on the radar of the company's senior management and board, I also was in business school. I did the executive program at Columbia Business School. It was a really cool experience sort of being in school and in the workplace at the same time. And I had decided that I wanted to pursue an entrepreneurial ambition. And I went to talk to the person who was the CEO uh, after the H&F transaction, David Rosenblatt, who's an incredible executive and a mentor. And I said, you know, I've decided I want to go start something or do something new and he said i'll tell you what i'll make you a deal why don't you build something new inside double click and that way there's a win-win okay um if the business works you'll have the experience of building a startup but also it'll pay off for the company and so he offered me the opportunity to be an intrapreneur inside double click which you know fast forwarding a little bit now seeing the kinds of things I'm doing inside an AT&T is highly relevant and a really cool experience. And so a core team and I formed around this idea. Uh, At the time, it was just called Project Wolf. We had this idea that if we were going to defend ourselves against Google, which was the big insurgent in the field of online advertising, we needed something to be able to um, offer to customers because previously we'd been a SaaS company. And so when we went to a publisher, for example, a web publisher, we were asking them to pay us. We were saying, hey, license our software and write us a check at the end of the month. 
Google really turned that on its head with AdSense and a free ad server that competed with DoubleClick that they were taking out to market. They were saying to publishers, hey, use our software and we'll pay you at the end of the month for monetizing your inventory, which is a much better sell and a much easier um, you know, sell for, for web publishers, as an example. So we were terrified of that. And so the idea was, well, could we leverage our installed base at DoubleClick? Your to- installed base of publishers. Publishers and agencies and, and buy, Okay, on both sides. Because we had the leading ad-serving platform for both buyers and sellers. Right. And so we, the idea was, well, can we leverage this installed base that we have to create a marketplace in the middle that can compete against Google so that we can offer more than just software? We can also offer buyers, monet, you know, audiences, and we can offer publishers monetization as well and compete. It was the only way we we could really see to effectively compete against you know the immense threat that Google represented to our business, and so well just to close that out. So yeah, sure, sir. We we had this code name project, Project Wolf, and the concept was effectively that. And the reason it was called Wolf was Wolf is flow backwards, and wow. the that's incredible. Yeah. And the, the, the basic idea was that we were going to take the inventory that existed in our platform with, at, at enormous scale and flow it backwards into a marketplace and leverage the competitive advantage that DoubleClick had established in the ad serving space to create a marketplace. So was that inventory that you were flowing back, so to speak, was that sort of remnant inventory, if you will? Yeah. Okay. In the earliest days of what is now known as programmatic, disruption came from the low end. And I think, you know, if you read a lot of literature, that's often how these markets develop. And so, yeah, it was the remnant inventory that publishers couldn't sell otherwise. It was the performance budgets that advertisers were prepared to kind of let run on an ongoing basis. That's what we created the initial marketplace around. And then, of course... We went up and up and up the value chain yeah. until today when this, you know, trend of programmatic advertising is, you know, kind of eaten the entire world of advertising. Yeah. So 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 good good opportunity to sort of put a pause and maybe have you just explain programmatic, what we mean by that. I think many people will will know, but certainly many people listening and watching will not. Sure. So maybe take a crack at that. So if you looked at digital advertising in the early two thousands, it, it actually was it looked a lot like the process of buying or selling magazine advertising or television advertising or newspaper advertising just ported to online, where um, you know effectively what DoubleClick had created was the leading software platform for reserving and forecasting um, available ad space. And that's very similar to how other medium other media worked. And you know, that allowed the industry to get to a, a certain level. I think what started to awaken us and others to the greater potential was when Google introduced AdSense and AdWords. AdWords was the first key, it was a, it was a bidded marketplace, an auction marketplace for keywords in Google's, in Google's case. And, you know, we saw, everyone saw the enormous scale that Google was attaining through you know, creating a more automated marketplace where people could um, leverage data and leverage the enormous scale that existed in a 
large-scale internet platform to be able to create you know more automated more always on more performance driven media a marketplace model for the advertising space dynamic yeah yeah and so google had done that successfully but really just in the text-based advertising keyword driven advertising space what we had the opportunity to do at doubleclick was to do that but for graphical advertising sight sound motion advertising on the internet and um so that effectively was the idea Banners, principally at the time. At the time, banners. Today, I mean, again, not to fast forward too much, but if you look at what we're doing at AT AT&T, it's taking those same principles and applying them to connected television, for an example. So it's it's really gone far beyond its initial, where it was initially incubated. All built around this initial disruptive concept of auction, buyers and sellers in a marketplace, bidding. Yeah, not necessarily bidding, but applying, it could be bidding, or um, applying automation, applying data, and applying, you know, algorithms and real-time information to be able to optimize on an always-on basis the media buying and selling happening in a digital environment. Maybe you could unpack that concept because while I understand that i'm not sure i totally understand that and 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 so that distinction when we talk about programmatic we're 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 not talking about uh, and we talk about an ad exchange we're not talking about the floor of the new york stock exchange where where it's like you know people yelling numbers out and 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 finding the highest price that way when we talk about programmatic how are those transactions. What, what's the what's the sort of the, the the flow of those transactions? How is the optimizing done? What are the algorithms trying to do? Are they trying to find sort of the highest yield for the publisher and the best analytics for the the buyer and matching those? And how does that work? Yeah. Well, of course, even core. even the New York Stock Exchange, I'm sure as you well know is a relic today and most of the trading volume is algorithmically driven high frequency trading and the world of digital advertising is is no different for a advertiser there are billions of available ad impressions every day that you can purchase around the world so there's many many opportunities to get your message in front of consumers what programmatic allows you to do is use data, whether it's your own data or, or intelligence or that belonging to others and analytics, to be able to make decisions in real time about what messages to show to which consumers across which devices. And as more and more of the advertising world becomes uh, digitally delivered, I mean, even as we walk down the street in New York today, and this is just recent development, the billboards are electronically delivered. and you know, you have electronically de- delivered uh, messages when you're, you know, watching Hulu on your, you know, mobile, mobile device. device yep. um, so it presents more and more opportunities for brands to be able to use these techniques to uh, deliver greater relevance and achieve greater results from advertising. And for the sellers of advertising, it allows them to manage the yield of their um, advertising business much more dynamically so they can determine in real time maybe they want to set price floors different in a particular geo or a particular time of day as an example or across different uh, 
you know, different media. They have display ads. They have, you know, video ads. They have different, you know, ads that they're able to surface to buyers. And so all of this is where is is requires intermediation by a very sophisticated uh, technology platform instead of technology capabilities. It's high scale. It's high frequency. It's happening 24-7 with no downtime around the world. And ultimately, it's not a small, it's not small business anymore. I mean, if you look at the last 10 years and companies like the rise of companies like Google and Facebook and now even Amazon in advertising, I mean, these are, you know, huge, in some cases, almost trillion dollar companies being built off the back of similar techniques. Going back to the moment in time where you guys had established your footing uh, with DoubleClick and you're looking to compete with Google, you then get into, and, and I, don't, I don't know how, how involved you were, but I'd love you to sort of reflect on, on this period of time. DoubleClick gets into, in effect, a bidding war between Google and Microsoft. Um, ultimately gets acquired by Google. It's main competitor, I guess, and absorbed by Google. And we'll talk about that story. Well, I guess part of that story is then Google becomes really the behemoth in online advertising, uh, controlling buyers and sellers. Um, some would say acting, acting monopolistically. Others would, would not, but, we, you know, but, but becomes really the dominant force. Um, Arguably double-click, arguably gets a, 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 Google gets a bargain with double-click because it accounts for now so much of Google's revenue. What was going on inside double-click at that time in terms of Google, Microsoft, and potentially even staying independent? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, a lot of it goes back to the exchange. So we did launch, as I as we talked about before, DoubleClick Ad Exchange out of that project that we launched, Project Wolf. And I think there started to be a recognition among large companies who had aspirations to be forces in the internet that they needed an advertising play and that Google was likely to disrupt their businesses as well if they didn't act. And so there was something in the air where the major players really, at the time, really started to gain that recognition all around the same time. So folks like AOL, Yahoo, Microsoft, um, really awoke, you know, awakened to that. Um, around that same time, as I mentioned, we were owned by H&F, so we were a private equity-owned firm, and I think they decided to run a market check. I mean, yeah. they knew that at some point they were going to sell the asset, and I think what they were able to figure out through an initial check was that there was a high level of interest. And in particular, people really were grabbing onto this exchange marketplace concept that, you know, hey, could we leverage our assets at even greater scale to build a marketplace in display ads or something like that um, that could compete with what Google has built? And so there was interest. And very quickly, to your point, the price of DoubleClick got bid up. And ultimately, you know, Google stepped in. I mean, every one of those companies, as I mentioned, was a bidder. Was involved. Yeah. Okay. And it got intensely competitive. 
And ultimately, Google came in and just took it off the table. And I'm, I'm reasonably confident that had they not, it would have continued to get bid up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next month or two after that was a pretty wild period where not only did DoubleClick get purchased for $3.2 billion, you know, less than two years after selling that core advertising part of the business for probably around a billion and I, and double and I think Google had passed by the way and purchasing it that round back when H and M bought it. H and F, okay. yeah. I'm sorry, H and F. Not only did DoubleClick go, but then the 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 bidders who had not won in that auction went and bought competing ad tech companies as well. So, yeah, a like quant- Yahoo bought Right Media. Yahoo bought Right Media, yeah. which was uh, you know great New York City exit, yep. Yep. Um, and you know relevant for me later on. Right, because those guys ended up starting up next. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, Aquantive, which had been the number two company behind us at DoubleClick in ad tech, ended up selling for twice our price because Microsoft had to have had to have it. And they ended up ultimately writing down the entire value of that company. But things like that were happening in the month or two after the DoubleClick sale. It was like this entire sector, which had been frowned on a few years earlier and then sleepy, all of a sudden became red hot. All these companies were acquired for record prices, and then uh, what followed afterwards was, you know, a we were at Google and charged with helping to build, extend their, you know, uh, lead in digital advertising. But then the other thing that happened was venture capitalists woke up to the potential of digital advertising and poured an enormous amount of money into the space after those exits in the next few years after that. And uh, those two forces, I would say, have dictated a lot of what's happened in digital advertising in the decade or so since. So do you think DoubleClick would have survived and prospered as an independent company had it said, you know, if these guys are willing to pay me 3.x million right now when we've sort of barely gotten started and we see this massive market opportunity, why don't we... You know, it, putting aside H&F's goal to have a private equity timeline and exit in IRR, had it been founder-led uh, and the founder said, nope, I'm just going to stick with what I'm doing. I think this can be a $50 billion company. What, what do you, how do you think DoubleClick would have fared as an independent company had that, as I say, that counterfactual sort of taken place? I think we would have fared pretty well because I, I don't think Google understood how little at the time they really understood about advertising outside of search advertising. They kind of viewed the entire world through the prism of search advertising. And search advertising is a very specific thing that's really different than banners or television advertising. And at the time, I don't think without us, they they would have been super successful at expanding beyond that. Um, but I think it would have been a competitive space, and you know we would have been under a lot of competitive pressure, both from independents and from new entrants like Google trying to get into the business. Um, but we had a really good company. I mean, DoubleClick was a strong independent uh, business and a growing company when we sold it to Google. So now let's uh, um, sort of the next phase of your career. Um, as as we as we mentioned, a couple of guys, a couple of the guys from Right Media start at Nexus. They recruit you over. Um, 
what was attractive to you about AppNexus at that time? Was it its independence? Was it you were just going all in on the ad exchange, programmatic? What, what, tell me a little bit about that decision. Or, or was it sort of a flyer? I just like being in startups. I don't like this, you know, big, big company at that time. Um, yeah, I, I spent a little less than two years with Google after the transaction. And my job there was to commercialize, re-commercialize the ad exchange as a Google product. And uh, that ended up becoming a huge home run for Google, a multi, multi-billion dollar business. I mean, it's, it's many people don't, I mean, this is a huge part of their business now. It's, it's massive. Massive. And, you know, I think was the thing that took that, you know, I mentioned that like early energy that companies like DoubleClick and Right Media had around pro, what became known as programmatic advertising. To me, when we launched Google's DoubleClick ad exchange, that was the moment that the entire thing went mainstream yeah. and, and ultimately now became sort of the way forward for buying and selling ads. I think that uh, for me, I really enjoyed my time at Google. I learned a lot. But I felt from pretty early on that it wasn't the place where I was going to grow the next phase of my career. I think there were a, a few things uh, that just, you know, made me feel that way. I mean, one is Google was, and, and I think to some extent still is, a very engineering-centric company where if, if you're not an engineer, at, at the time you couldn't even be a product manager. Um, and so Larry and Sergey and Eric, who, who were running the company all out of Mountain View, um, Really, I felt like engineers were the ones who were getting the best career opportunities inside Google. Uh, number two was, you know, I spent a lot of time in Mountain View and, you know, the other locations during my tenure with Google. And even though it's, you know, beautiful part of the world and a great place, I always felt a strong draw to come back to New York. And that was interesting because at that time I hadn't lived in New York that long. I, I probably only lived That's in New York. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. I've had the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd really miss like that energy. And, and I remember one day I'd spent a week in California and I came back to New York and I was walking down the street in New York on a beautiful spring day. And it was one of those days where you just feel the energy in the air and, and just like this incredibly pulsing, diverse, stimulating, stimulating senses. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just that incredible cultural experience of being in New York. And I just knew right then that I really wanted to be in New York. And so as I started thinking about it, I was like, well, I really, I don't want to throw away this incredible experience I've had pioneering this new marketplace. And I think that, you know, programmatic advertising is going to be the, it was, still wasn't even called programmatic yet. It was, you know, exchange traded advertising or something would be the future. So I'd love to do something that sort of builds on this experience that I have. And I also knew that I wanted to do something in and around New York, and I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and I always love and always have loved partnering with really talented, world-class people in an environment where a non-engineer could thrive. Uh, you know, I, I started sort of just almost in the back of my mind developing like criteria for what would be interesting to me. And then in, I think it was April 2009, two people almost in the same week introduced me to Brian O'Kelly. And Brian and I had been competitors because I was DoubleClick Ad Exchange and he was Right Media. So we were pursuing similar, you know, programmatic 1.0 aspirations. And 
you know, I had gone to Google. Obviously, he hadn't gone to Yahoo. He had left to start AppNexus. And two people who I knew and trusted said to me in the same week or two, hey, you, if you don't know Brian O'Kelly, you, you should really meet. You've had very complimentary experiences. I think you'd like one another. And Brian and I were put in contact. He skateboarded over to Google. and He's still that guy. I don't know him personally, but he still has that kind of overgrown kid vibe, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't skateboard anymore. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, Brian is this incredibly brilliant, energetic, big-hearted, and, um, you know, entrepreneurial person. Yeah. One of a kind. Yeah. And, Legend in, in Antarctica. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's he's certainly, I think, one of the most influential people in building the New York City technology scene as well. He, he's a really fantastic uh, entrepreneur and executive. And he uh, he came over, we sat down, spent an hour together at Google, and hit it off immediately. Um, you know, we're, we're nothing alike in some respects. Uh, you know, I'm much more, like, buttoned up and polished, and he's much more of that raw energy and he had you know the skateboard and the flip-flops and all that sort of stuff but we uh we really hit it off and liked each other a lot understood that we would be we would each be better by virtue of collaborating with one another and so forth and so over the ensuing months we spent a lot of time together got to know each other pretty well and I made the decision to leave the cozy confines of Google and uh make the jump to uh a New York City startup, and and AppNexus at that time was you know real scrappy startup. I mean, there were fewer than twenty, maybe twenty employees, something in that. Where nature. was it located physically? Uh, Five ninety four Broadway, so Broadway okay. and Prince, or between Prince mm-hmm. and Spring, I think. In you know one of these buildings where there's just you know a million startups, and we a looked million... at space in that building. Did you? Or not way back then. Yep, we did. Um, for whatever reason, we didn't take it. But at that time, I was like, we should be here. Yeah. Um, but anyhow. The energy in that office was sort of... Was was HuffPo? Was Ken Lair in there? Is that... I don't remember if they were in there. Okay. There were a lot of companies yeah. that yeah. ended up spinning out. And, and like, everyone was in one room and rickety chairs. And, you know, I remember going from my comfortable Chilean sea bass lunch at Google <laughs> in the cafeteria to... You know the bag of peanuts in the yep. kitchen at AppNexus. Like it was, it was really, really. It was thrilling, though. I mean, the energy, the passion, uh, the talent. You know, very young, but but that entrepreneurial energy was so palpable in that room. It it just got me so excited and made me want to be a part of it. What was the vision that you guys talked about for AppNexus? Like, where did you see it fitting in ultimately? Yeah, the vision has really not changed that much over the years. The idea was programmatic, or what has become known as programmatic advertising, is going to be the future. You know, applying data, applying automation, applying, um, you know, technology, contemporary technology to advertising is going to be the future of how this business runs. And, you know, the internet, in order to be able to fully capitalize on this is going to need a technology platform that can connect buyers and sellers at you know in in very very sophisticated ways and the principles of it were that it would be you know highly transparent highly cost efficient and really really effective at creating a marketplace basically between buyers and sellers 
And that still is the vision today. I mean, the company has evolved so much over the years, but if you look at who we are and what we do today, we're still that, you know, innovative, tech, innovative, transparent technology platform that ultimately is trying to empower the principles in the advertising transaction, the publishers and the brands, the creators, to capture the spoils of internet advertising. And it's a fundamentally different vision than that advanced by a Google or a Facebook. You know, th those narratives, their narratives have definitely won the last decade, the narrative of, you know, the walled garden. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in those instances, those companies are the ones who are capturing by far the benefit of uh, what's happening online. They're and, shareholders, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the advertisers and the publishers are effectively feeding the machine. Yeah. And we just felt like that's not the model that we want to represent. We think that there's a far better way to do this. And that platform approach is the approach that has guided the company ever since. So in terms of thinking about, at that time, competing with Google, um, was it based on, what I'm hearing I think is it was based on technology, but also based on openness? Yeah. Not being the closed system that Google was and still is. Yeah, we, I don't think we yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think we knew when we first got going the extent to which we would be competitive with Google. I mean, I think we always knew there would be some competition. But in the earliest days, actually, I thought that Google, you know, maybe Brian looked at it different. I'm not sure. But I, I thought that Google would be a... Um, a a supplier that that they would be the New York Stock Exchange or something like that, and, and we were going to build this business on top of it. But it became evident pretty clear, uh, pretty soon that that wasn't going to work. Um, they they started buying companies, including competitors of ours, and it became clear that they were going to go for a vertical integration approach where yeah. they would own the entire supply chain and extract all the profit out of it. And I understand why. I mean, I saw this firsthand at Google. When you're the size that they are at, you you can't take small extract small rents from a market and grow your market cap. You need big, multi-billion dollar revenue streams constantly. And I think that uh, as a startup, we, we didn't need to take that approach, right? We could live off small transaction fees. But, you know, once it became clear that Google was going to go for the whole enchilada, then I think the die was cast. And ultimately, the, the thing that probably really sealed the fact that we would be competitors with Google was... You know, ultimately, Microsoft came in in 2011 and made a sizable investment in our startup. They invested $50 million at the time, which was a lot of money in 2011 New York City tech world, especially for a 50-person startup. And they outsourced their own programmatic advertising business to us. And when the biggest software company in the world outsources something like that to you, and at the time, there was also a lot of friction between Google and Microsoft. Um, I think Google saw that as a competitive move. They actually cut us off from access to DoubleClick Ad Exchange, which was a major, major problem for us. That happened over Thanksgiving 2011. In response to the Microsoft yeah. investment. Yeah, and it, it, it threw our business into like temporary chaos. and. I mean, probably half of our revenue at the time of our fledgling startup, beautiful fledgling startup was based off of buying ads from Google. And so I think, you know, ultimately we ended up sort of negotiating a, a cold piece there. But 
you know, things like that ultimately just sort of like committed us and them, I think, further down our respective paths. And, you know, we effectively became the anti-Google. We became the platform that companies would choose when they cared about ownership of their data, when they cared about transparency, when they cared about uh, take rates and margins and, you know, keeping the economic benefits for themselves and maintaining control of their, over their own businesses. And that wasn't for everyone, but there was a portion and continues to be a sizable portion and probably a growing portion of the market that does care about that. And that was our customer base. Well, interesting. Um, you know, there's been this back and forth with uh, between Google and its publishing community um, with respect to pricing and transparency and, um, you know, the, the, their sort of right of first refusal, their unified pricing, header bidding. How do you see that playing out, particularly now that AppNexus is an AT&T company? Are there going to be outlets and alternatives for publishers um, who want that alternative going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we... With you guys? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that we decided to sell the company to AT&T was because, again, we, we survived and thrived in an era of unprecedented growth and market concentration. I mean, it. remember back in 2009 or 2007, 2009, when we were getting going with this, the iPhone hadn't yet been launched. We don't. We wouldn't. We didn't think of Google and Facebook and Amazon as the dominant market forces that we do today, and you know, under what has effectively become this era of like unbelievable market growth and concentration in these companies, we, we built a successful company. But I think the thing we recognized was that if we were really going to take it to the next level, we needed more. We needed more assets. We needed more partners. We needed more capital. We needed more of everything to be able to play on a bigger stage. And that led us to the conversation, the strategic conversation, about what to do next, what to do with the company. And the answer wasn't, hey, let's sell it. The answer was, let's explore a series of options, each of which could potentially have, each of which would have the outcome of giving us more. And so maybe that means we raise an additional round of capital or deepen a partnership with a strategic. Maybe that means we take the company public, or maybe it means if the circumstances are right, we sell it. And we embarked in a process to kind of go down those paths simultaneously. And in the end, we made our decision and we sold to AT&T. That's so interesting because I was going to ask you um, exactly that about, about what was involved in that process. Um, Presumably, you were working very closely with your board at the time. Was Microsoft involved in that? At that, yes, Microsoft was on, was on the board dating back from right. 2011. Okay, and they were supportive, obviously. Yeah, Microsoft was fantastic the entire way. I have to say, I mean, great customer, great partner, and great board member, and uh, they were always supporting us, and you know, uh, were looking at whatever was in our best interests. Let's switch gears a little bit here, because um, I do want to ask you, uh, sort of stepping away from um, AppNexus and, and AT&T, just your take on the industry and, and, and sort of, do, do you think that there are, what do you think are the green fields to come? Are there any left and, and, and sort of, what do you think are some opportunities? You're, 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 you're now a, a startup guy. You're, you're now thinking about your next company. 
in this hypothetical. What are you sort of focused on? Where do you think opportunities are going to come from in the digital ad business? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're, we've entered a new phase of competition in the digital ad business where the competitors aren't, you know, think back to the early 2000s and scrappy entrepreneurial companies like DoubleClick and Right Media and Aquant of slugging it out. That's not the market we're in today. The market we're in today is Google, AT&T, Amazon, Facebook, and companies of that size and scale. So, so what was sort of a, a street fight that in a lot of respects was happening on the streets of New York has become major, major business here as you know, a lot of the techniques that were sort of developed in digital advertising are now taking over the entire world of advertising. So if you look at um, the percentage of overall advertising that's digital and the percentage of overall digital that's programmatic, there's still a lot of room to grow. And I think that uh, look at what's happening in television. I mean, television and television advertising in the years ahead, television is still the biggest advertising medium, and it's only beginning to be disrupted. I think over the next 10 years, that's going to be the fight, and that's a fight that we are really pleased to be teamed up with AT&T to win. Um, But everyone is focused on that, right? I mean, that is a big, big prize, and Google and and others are obviously targeting it as well. Um, And so I think the next phase of this marketplace is, you know, the world's largest companies and most powerful companies um, competing against one another to attain big portions of the advertising business worldwide. And uh, it's across all medium. I don't think it's just confined to, you know, the, the web browser on your computer or on your mobile phone. It's, it's in-app. It's on your connected television. It's on the outdoor billboards. It's on the um, you know, radio or the, the streaming music that you're listening to when you're driving your car. Um, all that is addressable from a market size perspective. So the overall pie is going to continue to grow significantly. And arguably, if advertising becomes more relevant to consumers and more effective, then, you know, there could be room for higher CPMs and, and more growth in the system overall as well. So I think there's a lot of room for innovation. I think for entrepreneurial companies, the likelihood of building an ad tech company that that competes and wins against those companies is probably pretty low at this stage. But look, um, go back to the DoubleClick example of when we sold to Google. I mean, when you have a situation where you have multiple powerful potential buyers who are each seeking to you know, achieve success in a market, that's a good place to be if you've developed something cool and innovative and and unique. So I do think there are a lot of opportunities for startups in this space and probably probably will be a lot of M&A opportunities in the years ahead. I thought you said something really interesting, which was, um, you said many interesting things. Uh, one, one of which, in, it, as you just mentioned, was, you know, Nexus teaming up with AT&T with respect to this world of television advertising. Is that a function of AT&T fiber optics and AT&T in home? What's that? And and, and then how does that play out with Verizon, um, the cable companies? And what assets are people sort of stockpiling for that next five years of of market share and, and, and 
and rent. If you look at the transformation that AT&T is undergoing right now, it's quite stunning. And it's being led by the company's chairman and CEO, Randall Stevenson, who is a phenomenal executive and someone with a very bold vision. Um, You know, effectively, he has made enormous bets to transform a legacy telecommunications company into what he calls the modern media company. And that's what's guided a lot of the moves that have been made at AT AT&T. For example, the acquisition of Time Warner, uh, an enormous, enormous transaction, bringing in-house assets like HBO, Warner Brothers, CNN, and many more. Um, It's about content, and it's about media. And you can't be, I don't think, the modern media company without being really expert in advertising and without that being like a real core competence real core competency. So it wasn't too much of a surprise when two weeks after the Time Warner transaction finally closed, um, the acquisition of AppNexus was announced. And so the common thread behind all of those moves is um, AT&T has enormous content assets in the uh, premium video, premium content, uh, news, sports, things like that. And uh, we are going to leverage the, uh, the assets of AT&T, be that the content assets, the data assets, the direct-to-consumer, the 170 million direct-to-consumer uh, connections, the partnerships and relationships that the company maintains worldwide, we're, and, and obviously our technology platform and relationships as well. We're going to leverage all of that to create a premium advertising marketplace and platform um, not exclusively designed to disrupt the television video advertising space, but definitely like that will feature very, very prominently in what we're doing. It will anchor, I think, in a lot of ways, the marketplace. And, and there's a huge opportunity there too, because if you look at Google's position today, I mean, they have a dominant position in digital video, but it's YouTube. And so you wouldn't call that premium advertising opportunities. And the same with Facebook. They have a huge business as well. But again, it's not really premium. And so I think the combination of real world-class premium content, the data, the, you know, the, the relationships, and the advertising, is those are the ingredients we're, we're cooking up here. And the technology and the team. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, I think that's a great place to end, Michael. Cool. I, I must say, I thought we were going to talk about ad tech. You've really given a master class in what's going on in media. Um, Thank you. And I'm really grateful. Yeah, So of thanks for coming in, and uh, maybe we'll shoot for a return visit at some point in the next year or two. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks, Michael. Okay. That's a wrap on this episode of The Medium Rules with Alan Baldishin. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.